visiting a church last night during their worship service. The music was so loud I couldn't hear anyone singing, couldn't hear myself sing, and it was so beautiful to my ears this morning to hear you singing. I mean that. The saints are to sing to God. It's one of the most reiterated commands in the Bible to sing, sing, sing unto the Lord. Hearing your voice, hearing your voices this morning collectively as a body sing caused my heart to rejoice. So keep singing, will you? Don't be silent. This is not a time of entertainment. This is a time of worship to the living God. We, we live in a time and a culture where being skeptical is considered a virtue. Skeptical of everything and everyone. It dominates the, the Western landscape. It dominates higher education and it's made its way down. You couple skepticism with all the works-based religions that also define the Western culture and you have a highly suspicious, misled people. But going through life and entering the grave as a skeptic is as foolish as going through life and entering the grave following a false God and a false Messiah. Jesus, this morning, he comes to you skeptic. He comes to you religiously confused. And he says, come and see and follow me. He makes it wonderfully simple for us because he knows the battle of the flesh. He knows how easy it is for us to doubt everything and how easy it is for us to be ensnared by things that are not true. So I call you to come and see who this Christ is and what he has to offer rebellious fallen men like us. I'd like to do that this morning by coming and seeing the matters of the heart, God's irresistible, irresistible and transformative grace and the gateway to heaven. Matters of the heart, irresistible and transformative grace and the gateway to heaven. And we're going to do that by looking at John chapter 1 verses 35 through the end of the chapter, verse 51. If you have your Bible, follow along with me beginning at verse 35. The apostle writes, the next day, again, John, that's John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, and he saw them following. He said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, and that would have been about four o'clock in the afternoon. Our Lord turns to Andrew. We know it's Andrew, and most of us think that it's John the Apostle, John the Beloved, and he says to them, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? What do you want? What do you desire? Why are you coming after me? I think it's fitting and most wonderful that the first words that the apostle records of our Lord's in the gospel of John are intentionally probing words. He bypasses, Christ bypasses any religious formality and he confronts them directly. What do you want? 
What is your motivation for seeking me out? Now he's omniscient, we know that. So he knows their hearts, but he's saying it to them that they might benefit from the examination and the testing themselves. Why have they left John the Baptist, the last Old Testament, the greatest man ever born of a woman to follow Jesus? Jesus asked them because he wants them to know. Their response is, it's almost humorous. Almost as if they were caught off guard. Look at verse 38, it says, we, where are you staying? And they're not asking to be nosy. And they're not trying to get into Jesus' business, even though that's what they're going to get into is his business. They want an audience with him. They want a prolonged dialogue where they can sit down and they can ask him questions and he can ask them questions. Because John the Baptist had been testifying that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. And they had listened to John the Baptist and they had been baptized by him. And they were, they, when they went to leave to follow Jesus, John did not stop them. But Christ wants to know what they really want of him. Were they looking for a power play? Were they, were they looking to be with the, the next greatest rabboni, rabbi? Were they looking for the next big thing that was going to come and sweep its way through Judah? Or maybe some sort of salvific insurance policy? that can come without sacrifice or without transformation of heart and mind. Our Lord is so eager to make them into disciples as he is us. And so he says to them, come and see, come and see. And these are words they would have longed to hear. I mean, at this point in time, they had already been called by the Father. They wouldn't have gone to John. They had already been convicted by the Holy Spirit or they wouldn't have sought forgiveness for their sins in the waters of baptism. And they were now following the Son. And they knew that if this is the Christ, him saying, come and see that God the Son, this Son of God, could actually show them the Father and lead them to the Father. And that's what they desired. Now, we're not privy to the dialogue that took place that evening. But it was sufficient enough to compel Andrew to go get his brother Peter. Look at verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He was convinced. The testimony from John, the dialogue with Jesus, that this was the Messiah of the Old Testament. Messiah, it's a Hebrew word and it's the equivalent of Christ. Christ is the, is the Greek translation of it. It means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, an anointed one, it referred to kings, it referred to prophets, it referred to um, the people of God, but it also referred to the supreme anointed one that is talked about throughout the Old Testament scriptures. This one who would come and be the great deliverer and the great king and the great savior of mankind. The anointed one set apart by God to do this specific work. We know of this from Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, where the prophet said, the anointed one, the Messiah, you can say the Christ, will come to restore and build Jerusalem. And Andrew says to his brother Simon, we found him. More appropriately, he found us. And his brother knew what he meant. He wasn't talking about some prophet or some king. He was talking about the prophet and the king. He was talking about the supreme Messiah. Look at verse 42. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. 
Jesus looked at him and he said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, upon meeting Simon, our Lord does something very interesting. It's quite, quite an introduction. Hello, how are you? I'm changing your name. And he changes it from Simon, which means to hear, to listen, to Cephas. And it's actually an Aramaic word. It's kepa. And it means rock. And we know that the Greek is Peter, Petros, the rock. Now, most of you know this. The, in, in biblical times, the name was, it was someone's resume. It was the summation of their character. And so, knowing Simon from the gospel accounts prior to Pentecost, the rock would be the worst possible name that you could attach to him. Simon was anything but a rock. He was impulsive, he was unreliable, and he was regularly volatile. One minute he's walking on water, the next minute he's sinking because of a lack of faith. One minute he is refusing for Jesus to wash his feet, the next minute he says, wash my whole body. Adamantly saying that he would never ever forsake Jesus in a matter of hours, he denies him three times publicly. It was Peter who demanded that Jesus not enter Jerusalem to be crucified. It was Peter who cut off the ear of the high priest in the garden. Unpredictable. Not a rock. And throughout the gospel accounts, there's this interesting trend. Look for it as you read through. That oftentimes, our Lord would call Simon when Simon was acting like his old fleshly self. And then he would call him Peter when he was living in accordance with the new man that Peter had been called to be. And so what we find here in Simon Peter, which the scriptures also reference, is what we struggle with as well. The spirit in the flesh, Romans chapter 7, battling it out here. The things that I do not want to do, these things I keep on doing, oh, what a wretched man am I, Paul says. And so we see in Simon Peter this, this battle to be holy and to pursue Christ. But what I love is that he's not going to be left like that. This is not going to be his end. Not if Christ has anything to say about it. And it was Christ who renamed him. Jesus Christ had purposed that Simon would become Peter. And because he's God, his purposes will be fulfilled. After our Lord's resurrection, most of you know this, the disciples are out fishing and our Lord appears on the beach and he tells them to cast a net on the other side. They catch a bunch of fish. They realize it's Christ. They rush to the shore and they meet Jesus and they have breakfast. They eat. Our Lord in his resurrected body, physical body, they eat. At breakfast, he says to Peter three times, Simon, son of Jonah, son of John, do you love me? Simon, Simon, Simon. Three times he calls his unfaithful disciple back into the sheepfold, back into his identity as Peter, not Simon. Three times for repentance, three affirmations of forgiveness, and three affirmations of love extended from Christ to his disciple who had forsaken him three times. And you know what? That's the last time that our Lord calls Simon Peter. Last time. He's Peter from here on out. And by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he remains Peter. Jesus claims authority over Peter's life because Jesus is the creator. And just like Adam named the animals, so too does Christ rename us, giving us new names in him. 
And so the impulsive, unreliable, headstrong Simon that we encounter in the Gospels is transformed by God into Peter, into the rock. And we know this because in a matter of weeks, after this breakfast, after the, re- the ascension into heaven, Peter's the one, when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, Peter's the one that stands up and gives the first post-ascension gospel testimony to thousands. And he's the rock. He's standing on Christ. Jesus asked Andrew and John, what are you seeking? And Jesus changed Simon to Peter because our Lord is concerned about our hearts. He's concerned about the transformation of character. We becoming the very people of God. Changing us from Simon's to Peter's. Your old self into your new self. Your old name with all the sin and all the rebellion. He wants to destroy and make you into someone glorious. You're not meant to stay the same, saints. God saves you and he changes you, becoming more stable, becoming more rock-like, becoming more compassionate and more loving and more gracious as you're transformed into the image of the ultimate rock, Jesus Christ, who is the rock And so first we see that this Messiah, he's more than anyone expected. I mean, they were looking for someone to come from God who would bring about social, economic, and political change. And in fact, this man comes to probe into our lives and into our hearts. Is it any wonder they hated him so much? He says, we'll deal with the social and the political later. I want to know about your heart. I want to know about your sin. I want to know about you. That's the type of Messiah that has come. Jesus came to probe deep and by grace reveal our sin and by his work on the cross put that sin to death and by the mercy of God save us as a people and then each and every day in the power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy as he is holy. What a grand endeavor. What a great work of redemption. The work of redemption, when we we simplify it to Jesus dying on the cross to save people from hell, we miss the grand picture Of course that's necessary. Salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ, his death on the cross. It doesn't just save you and leave you. He saves you and restores you and redeems you and makes you a holy people. And that is the great picture of the church. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. You're new in Christ. He said the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And praise God for that. So first we see that Jesus is interested in the matters of the heart. If you're not interested in the matters of the heart, then you're not going to be interested in Christ. And you're certainly not going to be interested in the Word of God. The Word of God cuts deep, doesn't it? Second thing I want you to see is this irresistible and transformative grace. And it is irresistible and it does transform. Look at verses 43 and following. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see, come and see. 
And so our Lord, notice this, our Lord purposefully goes to Galilee to find Philip, who will in turn go and find Nathanael. And so the progression of discipleship goes throughout all of human history. Jesus calls someone, they call someone, upon whom the Spirit has already come. And you have churches. You have people that gather through this means of God calling and saving and others calling and saving. Jesus said to Philip, follow me. Now that would have been considered a great honor. Anytime a rabbi asked someone to join them and follow them, especially a rabbi that was gaining a reputation, they were called Rabboni, Rabboni, the, like the, the super rabbis. To be called to come and follow was a great honor. But I want you to know this. When he says to Philip, follow me, it's not a request. It's not a request. In the Greek, and I, and I, won't, I won't spend a lot of time on this, in the Greek, it's in the present imperative. What does that mean? Two things. One, following him is not optional. It's a command. It's an imperative. Jesus saying, follow me. Not, hey, Philip, do you want to follow me? Hey, Philip, I got some great things that are coming up in the near future. Hey, Philip, he says, follow me. Now, we must remember, this is Genesis 1, I mean, Genesis 1 and John 1, 1. This is the word. This is the creator. Every single molecule that makes up Philip's body was made and is sustained and belongs to Jesus Christ. So he has every right to say to Philip, follow me. You say, well, that sounds offensive. It's only because you're an American. He heard Christ say that. And he follows Christ. But he doesn't do it reluctantly. He does it joyfully. Because the Holy Spirit had already gone and worked on Philip in such a way that Philip wants to follow. And this is how Christ does it. Christ must call us and we will follow because the Holy Spirit will come and bring conviction and it will bring repentance and we will desire to pursue Christ. Jesus said in John 6, and we'll get to this in detail in a few weeks, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw in the Greek, it also means to woo, to attract. And then he says, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, this imperative by God to man to follow Christ, it is a command and it is one that we will joyfully want to do because the Holy Spirit gives us that desire. But there's something else here. I told you it was in the present imperative and that means in this present tense, it's a continuous action. In the military, they're called standing orders. If you have a standing order, you continue in that order until your commanding officer tells you to do something else. You don't say to your commanding officer, do you still want me to do this unless you want to suffer pain and misery? It's a standing order, and that means Jesus calling Philip to follow him is a lifelong call. He's saying, follow me now, follow me tomorrow, next week, and for the rest of your life, Philip. It's lifelong discipleship that Philip is being called into. And so you have the internal call of God, God the Father calling, wooing Philip to Jesus, you have the external call by Christ saying, follow me, and they're both so powerful. The Holy Spirit and the, the external call of Christ so powerful that the believer will go, as Philip did, to their friends and their family and the stranger, and they will say, hey, you got to come and check out this Messiah. Look at verse 45. We don't know the timeline, but it was soon Philip found Nathanael. Jesus finds Philip, Philip finds Nathanael, and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael was a man of God. He knew God's word, he loved God's word, and he knew exactly what Philip was saying. 
When he said Messiah, he was thinking supreme anointed one. But the law and the prophets testified to. And so Philip goes to him and he says, this is the Messiah of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. This is the Messiah that John the Baptist was talking about. And, and, John, and, and we were there last night. And, and this is the Messiah that he is testified to, Christ himself. But Nathanael's skeptical. Notice what he says in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Nazareth has received a bad reputation. You know, there's nothing in the Bible at all that talks about people coming out of Nazareth having a bad reputation. It doesn't mean that at all. Nathanael's response is in light of his understanding of the magnitude and greatness of this person who would come from God. So Nathanael was thinking, maybe he'd come, from, come out of Jerusalem or maybe a great city, but not Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is in Galilee and it was a small city in Galilee. And Nathanael is from Cana, and Cana was considered more powerful than Nazareth. So he's saying, you know what, if, he, if he's, he's not going to come from my town, he's not going to come from that town. To which Philip wisely replies, come and see. This is so great. Listen, evangelist. You don't engage in the dialogues of Cana and Nazareth. Philip said to him, just come and see. He doesn't engage in, in some dialogue trying to convince him of the doctrine of the Old Testament, this being the Christ. He doesn't even talk about John the Baptist's testimony. He just says to him, come and see. They're glorious words for all of us. When Jesus said to Andrew and John, come and see, they came. When he went to Philip and he said, come and see, Philip came. When Philip went to Nathaniel, come and see, Nathaniel comes. And that means, my beloved, Every single person that knows Jesus Christ can do evangelism effectively. If God is going to have someone come to him and see him, he must first do that work. He must go before them, prompting their heart. It, it's God who makes the great initiative on a man or a woman, bringing them to Christ. He must call each person by name as we will see that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, that the Holy Spirit must bring someone to life. They must be born again. We know this. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and following, that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. Listen closely. No one seeks for God. He says they've all turned aside. So anyone who's seeking after God, God's already sought them, found them, and is bringing them to the Son. And that means... Testifying to the truth of the Messiah is something every single one of us can do. The real Messiah, we can all say, as Philip is saying, we found him, he found us. This is the one of the Old Testament. This is the one the prophets talked about. And we can all then say, come and see. And it doesn't mean that you don't engage in the extensive dialogues that you can have about the holiness of God and, and the sinfulness of man and the need to repent and believe and put their faith in a savior. It doesn't mean that you engage in some of the major hurdles in the church and in the culture today to dismantle those that they might see Christ more clearly. 
It doesn't mean that you don't engage the skeptic or the pagan and deal with their false understanding or remove the stumbling block. But what it does mean, saints, is that every single believer is without excuse. Because if you know none of those things, but you know the Messiah, you can be like Philip and say, we know the Messiah, come and see, and bring them here, and I promise I will preach the gospel. So bring them here. See, I can't say anything else. I can't deal with the skeptic. I can't deal with the pagan idolatry. But I know the Messiah, and I can tell them to come and see. And how glorious is that? Philip understood something that he didn't really understand. And that is God's calling. Grace is irresistible. If God has set his affections on you, you will come. You cannot run away from God. If he sets his eyes on you and his love upon you, and he says, that one's mine, you can, do, you can be like Jonah, and you can get on a ship, and you can try to flee to Tarshish, and he will grab you, and you will rejoice in it. Irresistible grace. Paul makes this clear in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2 and following. He says, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. I love that. Paul says, we're going to speak the truth. We're going to tell you about Christ. We're going to tell you the word of God. We're not going to try to, to bring in lights and sound and smoke and noise and deceive you. He said, we don't distort the word of God. He says, on the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's so glorious. Paul says, we're going to preach the word. Your conscience will testify to that in the presence of God. And then he says in verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Remember what he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. Their foolishness to him, Why? Because the eternal truths of God are spiritually discerned. God must come upon you first to hear the word, to receive the word, to come and see and follow Christ. Those who came and those who saw and those who stayed were enabled to by God and given the desire by God. They want to. They want to. These few men, they saw Christ as one they could trust, as one they could follow. They saw him as the Messiah. They wanted to be in his presence. They wanted to be amongst his people. They didn't stay away from the means of grace. They didn't fight against hearing the word. They didn't fight against prayer. They didn't fight against scripture. They didn't fight against corporate gatherings. They engaged in the means of grace to grow in Christ. And as a result, God changed them. And as a result, they changed the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a far cry, my beloved, from so many in the Western church today. We had a chance to go places last night. How many have gathered today to come and see and play church? And it's playing church. There is no word being proclaimed. There is no gospel going out. There is no call to holiness. There is no magnification of the holiness of God. There is no revelation of the depth of the sin of man. There's no call. There's no call to be saved. It's playing church. How many today? Thousands? Hundreds of thousands? Millions? I don't know. I know that some of you may say this sounds harsh. 
If it does, it only sounds harsh because our understanding of coming and seeing and following, our understanding of real discipleship is so far off the mark. That's why it sounds harsh to our ears. In 2007, to fight against this type of ignorance within our own church, our church came up with a, a church covenant. You actually have it. Don't pull it out. Don't distract it. But it's in your bulletin. You can look at it later. And our church put this together straight from Scripture because we wanted to know, well, what does it mean as a church to actually follow Christ? What does it mean? What does it look like? We wanted every member and every prospective member to understand what it means to follow Jesus in the context of a body of believers, to come and to see and to follow this irresistible grace that does always produce fruit. And so as a church, we agreed, and this is in the covenant, we agreed to solemnly and joyfully covenant together, to come together and say these things. We will strive for and pray for the advancement of this church we will exercise a Christian care and watchfulness over each other. We will, we, will, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and bear each other's burdens and sorrows. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for public worship. We will regularly and cheerfully contribute to the ministries of the church. We will faithfully engage in making disciples. We will faithfully use our talents and spiritual gifts to edify and strengthen the church. We will cultivate private and family worship at home. We will walk carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, guarding ourselves from all sin. Basic elements of Christian discipleship that the members of this body says, this is what we commit ourselves to. Do we do it perfectly? Not even close. But this is what we're striving for. All prescribed by Christ and most of these forsaken by so many evangelicals today. Revealing, of course, what? Revealing our hearts. Jesus is interested in transformation of heart and mind. He wants to take his people from Simon's to Peter's. If we're not engaged, my beloved, in the loving watch care of our brothers and sisters, if we're not engaged in the great commission of making disciples, if you find the Lord's Day compromised by worldly affairs on a regular basis, if you're not guarding yourself from all sin and denying ungodliness, then your great concern is not a lack of submission to the word of God. Your great concern is your own heart. Because all these things come as a result of God doing a great work in you. He changes our desires. God's Irresistible grace, listen, saints. He will call you to come and see and be changed. He will call you to bear much fruit. This is the promise that Paul gives us in Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. What is the image of his son? Holiness. To be holy as God is holy. Changing the old self into the new self. So we've seen that Jesus is concerned with the matters of the heart and we've seen, I pray, that his grace is irresistible and transformative in nature. And I want to close on the last point here, probably the weightiest point of the three where Jesus reveals the gateway to heaven. Look at verses 47 and following. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus identifies Nathanael as an Israelite with no deceit, a genuine Israelite, a true Israelite. And that means it was someone who was pursuing God and had, had a heart for the things of God. He wasn't just practicing a religious structure, engaging in rules and regulations. He's identified by Christ himself as not being duplicitous, that his motives were sincere, that he was coming to Christ because he really wanted to know, are you the Christ? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? He wasn't there to trick Jesus like we will see the Pharisees try to do. He wasn't there to bring his agenda before Jesus, to dismiss Jesus as the Christ. He's there to know truth. And he's surprised. He's surprised, one, that Jesus knew his name, and two, that Jesus knew his character. Look at verse 48. How do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, most commentators, and I would agree in the way that this, this narrative is played out, most commentators argue that Jesus seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree was a supernatural event. It wasn't, he wasn't just walking by and saw him. That this is something that took place when Nathaniel was alone. Regarding this event, Morris writes this. He says, it seems that Nathaniel had had some outstanding experience of communion with God in the privacy of his own studies and prayer when Jesus saw him. Fig trees in that time were places where people would go, people who were pursuing Christ or God to study and to pray and to meditate on the word of God. Either way, Nathaniel realizes that Jesus has information that's privy only to Nathaniel, and therefore he knows the only way Christ can know this is if it's by some supernatural means. Rightly amazed, look at verse 49. Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathanael uses two, two titles here for Jesus, son of God and king of Israel. Do you remember the purpose why John wrote this gospel? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That you might believe that he is the Messiah, the son of God, and in believing have eternal life. And so here we have Nathaniel identifying Jesus as the son of God. To be called the son of anything at all was a title used to express someone's personhood, their character, who they were. A troubled person was a son of what? Affliction, Proverbs 31.5. A reprobate was called a son of wickedness, Psalms 89.22. Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Christ, he was called a son of what? Of perdition. In 2 Samuel 7, 14, you remember this. God identifies the Messiah as the son of God. He said, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And so when Nathaniel calls Jesus the son of God, he's not just saying son of God in a general sense. He's saying the son of God. Nathaniel is revealing things he doesn't even know himself. He's revealing an aspect of the Trinity that this is the Son of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's revealing before Jesus has a chance to talk to Philip in John chapter 14 when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. 
Nathanael also calls him a king, the king of Israel, recognizing him not just as Israel's king, but as his personal king, as the one that he was going to give his life to, son of God, Messiah, and king of Israel. Nathanael, with very little knowledge, was understanding the magnitude of the person he was standing before. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. This is the king of Israel. This is the one God sent. And so Jesus answers him in verse 50. Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathaniel, who most commentators believe is Bartholomew in the Synoptic Gospels, he's rightly impressed with Jesus' supernatural ability. But you can almost hear Christ chuckling saying, you're calling me the son of God and the king of Israel because I saw you under a fig tree, supernaturally? He's saying, I love you, but that's nothing. You're not gonna believe what you're gonna see. Greater things than these. In a matter of days, our Lord is gonna turn water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. Our beloved Nathaniel is going to see this man heal the sick, give sight to the blind, Make the lame walk, calm storms, walk on water, multiply food, raise the dead, and then die and be raised himself. 37 miracles written down in the gospel that Nathaniel's going to be privy to. And so many more that John testifies to in John chapter 21 that aren't even recorded. And yet, this simple miracle was sufficient for Nathaniel to call out, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Our dialogue closes with our Lord giving Nathaniel a taste of the greatest miracle of all. And I don't want you to miss this. Verse 51 is the most extraordinary verse in this passage. Look with me. Jesus said to Nathaniel, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, most assuredly, let it be so. Attach whatever English Um, word you want to it. It is only used by Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And every time he uses it, he's saying, listen up, this is really, really important. You will say, well, isn't every word that comes out of Christ's mouth important? Well, of course it is. But there are some things that are more important, and this is one. And so he says, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That'd be quite a sight. What is our Lord doing? He is drawing the disciples and he wants to draw us back to Genesis chapter 28. Because this this story sounds familiar. If you know your Bible, you say, well, there was another time when the the heavens opened up and a ladder descended. Let me just read it to you. It's better in the Bible. Ready? Genesis 28, 12. Jacob, the father of Israel. His name was changed also from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel. Jacob had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then he says in verse 15 of Genesis 28, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then in verse 16, when Jacob awoke, 
He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is, listen, the gate of heaven. And he called it Bethel. This is the gate of heaven. Access by fallen man to the living God. Now you know, my dear friends, that as a result of our sins, the gate of heaven has been closed. Our parents, Adam and Eve, were cast out of the garden for their sin and rebellion against God. Cast out of his presence. They were closed off from the presence of the God Almighty. And the Bible teaches clearly that all mankind has inherited the sin of Adam. We were born like that. We came into the world like it. And we have fully exercised our own sin and rebellion. And no one can deny that. None without their conscience testifying against them. What is the result then for all mankind as it was for Adam and Eve? No access to God. The gate is shut. There is no way back into the heavenly realm. Instead, apart from Jesus Christ, we face an eternity of separation. That means all who do not have Christ, not having the glory of the Father, the one they were created to enjoy and worship forever, but instead having a place that is filled with fire and the weeping and gnashing of teeth where the smoke rises forever and the worm never dies. The Bible calls it hell. That is the state for all mankind. That's what we inherit. That's what we exercise. That's what we justly deserve. But what if I said to you, what if I said, there is another way. This doesn't have to be the end. What if I said to you, skeptic, you don't have to be destroyed. What if I said to you, religiously confused, your end does not have to be eternal damnation. What if I said to you, come and see. Let me ask you this. If I said to you that after the service, I wanted you to come and follow me because there's a place that I found where there's a gateway to heaven, a portal. And I can show you the portal. And not only does the portal get you into the presence of the Father, but if you pass through this portal, you'll be made holy and clean so you can actually come into his presence without being killed. If I told you I found this portal, how many of you would come? How many of you would follow? Would you come and see? Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see signs and wonders that will boggle your mind and bring about fear and trembling in your heart. But the greatest miracle of all, Christ saying, will be my work on the cross, which opens that gate back up again. Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you things that will enable you to go home, to come back into the presence of God, where you were created to, to be in his presence, to know him, to love him, to be loved by him, to worship him, and to enjoy him. Now, some of you know Matthew 24, 26 well, where Jesus said, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say to you, look, he's in the room, do not believe them. You would say, I'm not following you anywhere, pastor. You're talking about some portal. And you'd rightly bring the scripture to me. And you say, it's not a portal. It's not a place. It's a man. It's Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he's not going to be coming in secret where you have to go find him. He's going to come in such a way where everyone sees him simultaneously. When our Lord comes again in the glory of the Father, all mankind will know and see. 
Jesus is saying to Nathaniel that through the cross, Christ saying, I'll open up heaven. I'm going to make a way. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to bring you back into the presence of my Father so that you, Nathaniel, can be the man that you were created to be to worship and enjoy my Father forever. You know this. We're spiritually dead in our sins. And apart from Christ, there's no access to God. But Christ said there is another way. There is a narrow gate that goes through the cross. And the same God in Genesis chapter 8 who stood at the top of that ladder and said, I am the God of your father Abraham and the God of your father Isaac. That same God came down that ladder and he came to earth and we saw that two weeks ago. He came down and he lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. And he died a sinner's death that you and I justly deserve to die. He became our substitute on the cross that in receiving the punishment of God, we might live. In other words, Christ overcomes the problem of sin. That barrier that keeps sinful man out of heaven, that keeps the gate closed, Christ says, I'm gonna overcome it, I'm gonna suffer, I'm gonna die on your behalf. And if I become Lord to you, Christ says, if, if you come and see and follow me, And I will not only pay for your sins, but I'm going to make you holy and I'm going to open up that gate and you're going to come back in. Christ is the real portal. He is the substitute. He is the ladder to heaven. He is the link between a holy God and fallen man. It's him. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 6, He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the narrow gate. He's the only way. Not Hinduism, not Islam, not Buddhism, not atheism, not agnosticism, not skepticism, not your work, not your portfolio, not your marriage, not your children, not your ego, not your church attendance, not your baptism, not your communion, It's Christ or it's damnation. Christ is the only way. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah is the only way. I say that to some of you and you say, I know this, I've heard this my whole life. And yet our lives do not live in accordance with that truth. If Christ is your way and your truth and your life, then you will spend your life killing the Simons and bringing Peter to life by his spirit and his power. If this is true, if he's the only way, because we still, saints, truth be told, we still spend a lot of time trying to save ourselves. A lot of time trying to work idols, trying to enter different gates, There's one. I want to show you one more thing and I'll close. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. That word, again, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. And that means something simple, 
and yet important for us. It means that the gate is opened and it will remain open. In other words, right now, regardless of how lost you are or how sinful you believe yourself to be or how distant you are from God, right this very moment, that gate is open to you. Christ is saying to you, as he said to Nathaniel and to Philip and to John and to Peter and to Andrew, come and see and follow me. He's telling us to stop trying other gates and other doors and other paths. He's saying you need to come and put your faith and your hope and your trust and your life in me completely, completely, your whole life. So stop holding things back. Stop holding your finances back. Stop holding your careers back. Stop holding your marriages back. He wants everything. He demands everything. He comes to you like he came to Philip. He says, follow me. And it's not an option. It is a command. And he is the creator. We belong to him. So much rebellion still. In our hearts. So much still. Living by our rules and our standards according to our ways. Jesus says, come and follow me and give your life to me. Jesus is the son of man upon whom the angels descend and ascend. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, he said, in a favorable time, God now speaking, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then he says in a most famous verse, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The gate's still open. But just because it's in the perfect tense doesn't mean it will remain open forever. It will not. It will shut. The gate is open today. Today is the day of salvation. If you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation. That gate is open for you. I, I, I pray you come and see. Some of you still do not know. So many of our friends and family, they do not know this gate is open. As we shared the gospel last night, we went to a handful of places that call themselves churches, but they're not. There's no gospel. And I looked around the beginning of this service, and there were, I don't know, two, three, four hundred people. And I thought, how many in this room do not know that there's a gate and that it's open and they can be saved by Christ? How many? When Christ comes again in glory, the gate will be shut. Listen. When you leave this place and you enter into eternity, if you do not know Christ, that gate is shut. The Bible does not teach second chance theology. When Christ comes again in glory, that gate will be shut for everyone. Because when he comes a second time, it will not be the suffering servant it will be like the glorious king of all creation. And he will come, the Bible says, in the power of his heavenly father. And he will bring judgment 
upon the earth. And so he says to you now, while the gate is open, come and see and follow me. Those are such glorious words. Come and see and follow Christ. Our Lord is concerned about your souls. He not only wants to save you, he wants to transform you. God the Father is the one who wooed you. He called you. Jesus Christ is the one who died on your behalf. He paid the price that you might be saved. And it's the Holy Spirit that made all this known to you. If you know these things to be true, it's the Holy Spirit who did this great work in you. He brought the conviction. He brought the repentance. He enabled your lips to say, Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. Save me. How incredible. The holy triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is so interested in your salvation. I pray that God would keep our feet on the narrow path. Jesus said in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many, so many on the broad path. But then he says in verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Are you one of the few? Are you pressing hard into Christ? I love it when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful men are laying hold of it. Are you laying hold of Christ? Are you grabbing on to him with all your might? Are you saying I have come and I have seen and I'm following him? Are you praying to God, I will not turn to the left or the right. Give me that power, God, not to look to the left or the right, but just keep me on this narrow path. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for our church. Let's pray for all those people that we visited yesterday in churches that gathered this morning where they didn't hear a gospel at all. There's no gospel. Saints, if there's no gospel, there's no hope. Let's pray for them. Let's pray. Father, we know that this gate is narrow. We know the way is hard. But we also know it leads to life. We're so thankful, Lord, that you you called us by name and you drew us to your son. We're so thankful that your son did the unthinkable by dying on the cross for sinners like us. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for coming to us and breathing life into us and then showing us the absolute perfect holiness of the Father and the complete and total depravity of our own hearts. We praise you, Holy Spirit, for causing us to cry out for mercy and then giving us mercy. Heavenly Father, we want to come and we want to see and we want to follow Jesus. We know our hearts will not. We know our flesh will not unless you change us. Lord, put to death the Simons that are still in us. 
and change us into those rocks. Those stable, reliable, day by day, week by week, people who pursue Christ. We ask you to do this, Lord, for your own glory and your own majesty, that you might have a people, a people that are truly holy and set apart for you. Do this great work, I pray, that your name might be magnified. It is worthy of all glory and honor and praise now and forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.